Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. This is Anna David. You're listening to After Party Pod, podcast about addiction and recovery. And if I sound exhausted, that's because this is my third attempt to record this intro. Something keeps going wrong and Mercury is not even in retrograde. But as a guest on my other podcast said, you seem like somebody for whom Mercury is always in retrograde, which anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that is true because I'm constantly having recording issues. That other podcast, by the way, is called You've Got Issues with Anna David. It is released every Monday. And I talk to guests about their pettiest issue and in 15 minutes try to get to what's underneath it. Let's talk about this podcast though. This podcast is released every other Friday. And it is a part of AfterPartyMagazine.com, which is a lifestyle publication for people seeking recovery, in recovery. It is the website that I wish had existed when I was bottoming out on drugs and alcohol and would look online and couldn't find anything except stories about how Charlie Sheen had gone to promises and it hadn't worked. After Party is a part of RehabReviews.com, which is the world's largest resource for rehab reviews. If you or a loved one is looking for treatment, that's where you should go. Now, let's get into the guest. Dr. Adi Jaffe is a therapist and he runs alternative. Oh my God. See, I just had his whole info up for the other 16 times I tried to record this intro and now I just closed it, but it's called Alternatives Addiction Treatment. He's a UCLA trained addiction expert and his treatment center does not promote abstinence and he was addicted to drugs and does not promote abstinence for himself. He explains his philosophy and what he is trying to do and share with the world in this interview very articulately. So I'm not even going to attempt to do that, but I've been aware of him for about a decade and had some judgment because we have such different approaches about this whole thing. And then he and I were at this amazing event over the weekend that put on by Mind Body Green, the website, and it was called Revitalize, and he was one of the keynote speakers, and his talk was brilliant. So I immediately went up, introduced myself, and invited him on this podcast. So with that, I'm going to give you Dr. Adi Jaffe. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton-y. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? First, I want to say that your talk that I heard, we're going, by the way, your talk last weekend was spectacular. Thank you. 
Thank and you. it was interesting because having been aware of you for so long and knowing we disagree on a lot of things, I didn't know what to expect. Okay. I didn't. Because you thought I would say a lot of things you would disagree with? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I think that's, to be honest, that's what I love about the opportunity to do this. And I, um, I think we end up finding, when I have these deep conversations with people who come from the opposite side, quote unquote, I think we end up finding out that we agree on 90% of the stuff. Right. It's the last 10%. And, yeah. And that's okay. I mean, that happens in everything from politics to what sports team you like and why you like one team versus another. I don't think that's a problem. My driving force and kind of what I, what I try to do is open up the conversation mm-hmm. so that more people feel included, honestly. Because mm-hmm. to me, as you know, and you've been around this long enough, we, we've both been around this a while, but it used to be where you were only allowed to have one conversation. And you were essentially a heretic if you had another conversation. That's not okay. Now I feel like it's the opposite, where you're the heretic if you have that one conversation that was the accepted conversation. You mean they're like, AA is the only way yep. moving forward? I Maybe. mean, I feel like it's so under attack and mm. it can't defend itself. And that's just a really unfortunate thing. That's really interesting. So it's funny how different it looks from, from both angles, I right? Know. It's kind of like, it's um, if I can go on a slight tangent. And by the way, I, I think... In doing this, I'm, I'm going to be as transparent and yes, honest as I, as I and me too. can be. Cool. Yeah. And so it's a little bit like the conversation of white privilege in this country mm-hmm. that is now bitching and moaning that they're losing, that America is changing, mm-hmm. right? And that's a good thing, by the way. That's not a bad thing that mm-hmm. we were getting more inclusion and that transgender and gay rights are becoming recognized and that African-American and Mexican immigrants are getting recognized for the issues that they've actually been struggling with for a very long time. Just mm-hmm. nobody ever cared. To me, it's the same thing as what's happening with the with the kind of AA movement. It's never been the only way. It's just that it's been controlling the conversation for a long time. So if it feels like it's losing power from the other side, that's okay. I'm not one of those people who doesn't think AA has a place in the recovery movement. I think yoga has a place. I think there are dozens of options of what to do. What bothers me the most about the old conversation, which is the singular conversation, is that 90% of people weren't having it. So they weren't being included. They weren't... When you say out. 90% of people weren't having it, what do you mean? So if you look at SAMHSA research on the people who go into treatment, yeah, 24 to 30 million people, depending on what compulsions you also include in addiction, meet criteria for having addictions in this country in any given year. And only about 2.5 million people go to treatment. And so that means that 90% of the people who have addiction issues are not engaging in any level of treatment and but when samsa does this engaging in aa meetings is engaging in treatment by itself just so you know i always find these arguments ludicrous because um having been in meetings you know for 17 years no one has ever taken a survey no one has ever counted nobody knows i could be having a meeting in this office they're all over the place like i find these you know in this and the studies that they do about the effectiveness of aa they will take a sample group and say like, and, and there are many studies that shoot, that pro, prove the effectiveness of it. But even those are like, well, after 10 years, 16 of them were still sober or whatever it was. Yeah. So actually, that's a, I, I had to dig in pretty deeply because if I'm going to speak yep. about, about AA's effectiveness versus other places, et cetera, I dug in pretty deep. And there is research that shows that AA is effective for the people who participate in it. Yes. So that's not, it's not like there isn't. When people quote 5 and 10% rates, yeah. well, what they're looking at is something that's called intent to treat analysis. So an intent to treat analysis says every single person who walks into an AA meeting, right, 
with zero other requirements. If they set foot in a meeting, are they sober a year later, five years later, whatever? That's called an intent to treat analysis. It's the same idea as like, what's the effectiveness of a medication? You can't only count the people who are going regularly or taking the pill regularly because if the treatment is so abrasive that people don't want to engage in it, it doesn't matter if it's 100% effective if nobody wants to take the pill, right? So, But, but who, who would possibly know that how many people have this intent to treat? I mean, that's crazy. No, no, no. It's, I don't think it's crazy. I mean, I think we have to actually... It's funny. I, so I teach a stats class at UCLA uh-huh. and um, we have to do samples because there's no way... I mean, there are millions of people who participate in this program. There's zero way, given especially anonymity, to get to them. And so... We can't just end up on two camps and one camp say, well, you can't study this. And the other camp says, yes, you can. We have to figure out a way. If we're going to say that it's effective, we've got to figure out a way to measure its effectiveness. Well, I mean, I think with science-based things, it is ab- samples absolutely make sense. But nobody will convince me that samples make sense in terms of this. But why? Why does, why does it not make sense? Why can't a subgroup of people who participate in AA be representative of AA? Okay, if you're talking about medication, there is a way to track. I mean, it's the most untrackable thing. It is, and it's such an individual thing. And what's and as we were talking about before, what does sober mean? It is a word that has many, many definitions. So, do you want to tell us your definition? To me, now, and it's very much changed over the years. You mean, know. even for you, it's changed. Over oh the years. yeah, oh, okay. absolutely. Yeah, because we couldn't say has it changed over the years for the collective consciousness. We have no idea. But for me, I'm somebody where twelve step just works. I, you know, it just I now see I'm just was bizarrely set up for it. I had no issue with a higher power. I believed in some vague sense. I love to share about my issues. I find healing through the writing about them, and I was dying for rules for living because I felt like I had none. And I really need people. I really get into a support group, sort of collective. You know, I get a lot of comfort. But you were resistant to it when you started? Well, everybody's resistant to it when they start. And no, but that's, and that's the crazy misconception is that people think if you're in it and you're into it, that you went skipping in. I read all the books that were anti-AA. I talked about how I would never go there. We all did. No, I didn't. I was sober in A for three years. So that's interesting. So let's let's. You were oh, you were psyched to go in. I was in Pacific Group. Oh no! So wonder. so hold on. Um, let's just kind of backtrack a little bit because yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I feel like we ran right into this. I know we discussion. did. We did, and it doesn't normally go like that. Okay, it's okay. But um, just to kind of get started, right? So yeah. my route. I don't know. You'll probably do like an intro for. But uh, but not much. So is. you okay. do it. So my route went. I used a lot of drugs, and then I sold a lot of drugs while using a lot of drugs. And only hung out with people who were hardcore drug users, drug dealers, you know, strippers. Like that was, that became my world for about five years. Here in LA? Here in LA, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my recording studio, which is where we used for about three years straight until we got kicked out of there because somebody bought the space, was right on the corner of Olympic and Sepulveda. For anybody who lives in LA and you know that 7-Eleven, Olympic and Sepulveda, two buildings behind that where the auto shops are, that's where my studio is. And you were, you were a musician? I mean, I came out to LA to go to UCLA and make music. Didn't know that. So I'll say yes, but really, what I ended up doing is just being high on meth all the time. Right. It started with the rave. My music was industrial when I we started kind of like rock and hardcore kind of stuff, and then became more EDM kind of stuff before EDM was a thing. When I got into ecstasy and Molly and all the all that stuff, Molly uh, was around then. Ecstasy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we used to be called it X or E yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. right? But um, which is a great name for a drug, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um. And I got really into the rave culture, got got into more producing kind of like electronic stuff. But then honestly, when I graduated UCLA, I was just a drug user and drug dealer. Like there was, 
yeah, I had a recording studio and at three o'clock in the morning when everybody else was passed out in the world, I was making music, but I wasn't really a musician. Was it hard to graduate from college as an addict? I barely made it. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the skin of my... I mean, it was... I actually remember the call I got that they changed the rules and a class that was used to be required was now optional and that's how I graduated. So I graduated a year after I actually stopped taking classes. So yes, the answer is yes. I was, I was smoking meth in the bathroom in between tests. I mean, it was bad. I hear that meth can be extremely effective when you first start using it and you need to study. Yeah, that's how. So my junior year of college, that's how I started meth was yeah. one of my friends. I was, I'd had a bit, really bad breakup and um, my friend said, hey, I've got some stuff that'll help you study before finals because I was not doing well at all. And I said, oh, okay, let's try it. And it was dirty. I mean, it was dirty meth. It was like yellowish brown yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was not good Did stuff. Did you snort it? I snorted it and uh, I was up for three days studying. And I'm not going to say I did well, but I passed mm-hmm. all the classes. And so, you know, that thing, what I recognize in, my, in myself is I'm very impulsive and prone to just do shit. Yep. Is it okay to swear on this thing? Yep. Right. So I just do stuff. And in this situation, somebody gave me stuff that when I put it in my nose, I can study better. So next time there was finals, I used meth again. And after that, there was midterms. I used meth again. And I was already selling ecstasy at the time. And so when people asked me if I can get the meth, I was like, sure, why not? And then I started selling meth. And when I started selling meth, I was getting good stuff. And I just, I got hooked. I mean, mm-hmm. Did I was, you, were you ever shooting it? No, I never got to injecting anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was a physician and I have a really big barrier for using needles for recreation. Mm-hmm. So that saved me. Did it's you also the reason I never tried heroin. Oh, you, well, hey, heroin's snortable too. No, no, totally. But the reason I didn't try heroin was a friend of mine and I were going to try it. Mm -hmm. And uh, over winter break when I was going back home and we always just said, we're just not going to shoot it. We'll snort it. He tried it two weeks before I came home, snorted the first bag, shot up the second. And I was like, fuck that. I'm staying away. So at least I have the wherewithal to kind of go, yeah, "Yeah, not not stepping into that landmine. Which is interesting when you say you were impulsive and somebody just put meth in front of you. But literally other than heroin, I tried everything everything else. else. I mean, from crack to meth to... Yeah, and were you majoring in psychology? Yep. Yeah, I majored in psychology. I was pre-med and then realized that's not going to work. Made it into psychobio from biology and eventually psychology. And so you graduate, you are a drug dealer and with a college degree from a very good school yeah. and a drug addict. And yep. then what happens? I got in a motorcycle accident. Okay. So if you watch my TEDx earmuffs right now, if you haven't watched it yet, so you can watch the thing. But I got in a motorcycle accident and I had a half a pound of Coke on me because I was out delivering. And um, I'd been arrested in Beverly Hills already. So they kind of knew me. I think they looked at my license. Actually, some of the first cops on the scene were undercover cops. So they might have even been following me. I'm not really sure. And I don't really care, to be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest. But they came by. My bike was down. I was on the floor. And they took my jacket off. And then when they... Put in, in uh, evidence, they, they found the cocaine. So I, I came to in bed at the hospital at Kaiser, uh, unless you got um, handcuffed to the bed with this like yellow note on my chest that, uh, that I'm under arrest. <laughs> when the cops realized that I couldn't, I couldn't move. I mean, I was immobile for about two, three months. They left me there, kind of uncuffed me and said, okay, whatever, we'll come back. Right. And then for the next three to five months, they kind of tried to harass me to snitch on people, etc. And that was one of my codes in life in general is if I fuck up, it's my bad and I'll, I'll figure out a way out of it. But I don't, I don't want to take anybody else with me ever. And so I wouldn't give them the name. I gave them a false number. And then I woke up Saturday morning at eight o'clock in the morning to a SWAT team in my bedroom. When um, you still couldn't move? Yeah. Oh, no, no. You got out of the hospital. I mean, I got out of the hospital, but I was still in bed with a broken leg. And uh, I was G'd out because I'd taken GHB to fall asleep from the meth. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so I didn't hear the knocks on the door or anything. So I just woke up to them. 
Okay, so you get out of the hospital. Were you doing drugs in the hospital? Would they put you on pain pills? No, I mean, yeah, they put me on pain. I'm not. A, I realize I'm not an opiate person yeah, yeah. actually. But yeah, I had my assistant bring meth to the hospital in a pipe. You were a drug dealer with an assistant. I was. That's pretty together. You know, I, I, I get I keep my shit together. No, I can't pay bills. Right. I have a real again. It's you know for those who don't understand ADHD, it's a really bizarre thing to have because I just actually had another realization with my wife just the other day. Like whatever's in front of me, whenever it's there, is the most important thing in the world. I have only one priority. And it's number one. And so it's really hard for me to create any systems because until something becomes habitual, it's, I just don't do it. So right. paying bills became, I mean, literally I would have stacks. I got a, I had a car. I was making like $50,000 a month on most months and my car got repossessed. Right, right, right. Because you I just, just didn't pay it, yeah. the bills. So, I mean, I paid in drugs and a little bit of money to this assistant that would help. And so, yeah, she, she brought me... She brought me my meth and a pipe to the Side hospital. note, I do think that is very, like, quote, addict behavior. I sponsored a lot of women who have that. I don't have that n- not opening the bills thing, but it's sort of that Avoidance. denial of sure. adulthood and responsibility. Absolutely. No, and, and I deal with that all the time now. And so SWAT team, my lawyer said, um, hey, you're looking at I had 13 felony counts that Jesus. were uh, coming up because they get you for every single drug. And he said, if you don't get go to rehab and clean yourself up, uh, you're looking at decades in prison. I was like, let's go to fucking rehab. Yeah. And so you were I, how old? 25? 25. Yeah. So the first rehab was in Pasadena and I lasted about three months, although within a month they allowed me to go back to work. So I actually started using about a month and a half after that mm-hmm. rehab stint. Work was my recording studio mm-hmm. and uh, pretty quickly I found drugs there and at first it was like, I'll just do one, you know, blah, 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 the, the wonderful kind of story. Smoked a little bit of meth then did a little bit more, da, 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 da. New Year's Eve, they let me out. Mm. New Year's Eve, I was doing meth. All my friends were on Molly or ecstasy, whatever at the mm-hmm. time. Came home, of course, they're going to test me. So they tested me, tested dirty, got kicked out, kicking and screaming, saying that they're lying and all this <laughs> stuff. And then when I got, when I left that rehab, I went, oh shit, I'm homeless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I slept on this girl's couch, in her bed, on her couch, whatever, but um, for two weeks looking for the next thing to do. Where were your parents? My parents were in New York at the oh, time. I see, and I see. so. But what happened during those two weeks is I was actually honest with my dad when I got kicked out. And for the first time in my life, I said, you know, that thing came in. I'm like, I've got to handle this. You can't, you know, he's yelling at me and all this stuff. What do you want us to do? And I said, you can't do anything. I've got to handle this. So for two more weeks, I was using, but I was looking for a new place, found my next place. Obviously, all these places, by the way, in uh, kind of in line with the conversation we're having, were all very 12-step based, right? Like mm-hmm. heavy, heavy 12-step based. The sober living I went to called Miracle House in, um, in L.A., mm-hmm. Highly structured, went to Pacific group meetings, like hardcore 12 step. And you were saying, you know, nobody goes in, everybody goes in kicking and screaming. I didn't go in kicking and screaming. I was like, I need to figure this shit out. Like, I can't. One could call your leaving rehab and doing meth you know, and sleeping on a couch, a little bit of kicking and screaming. It's not like you went dancing in. No, no, but what I'm saying is this. Like, I wasn't resistant to the fact that I needed help. Was I... Willing. Were there no? Were there like missteps? Yes, but I mean, you've been around this for seventeen years. The vast majority of people have missteps. There is a limited crowd. And I don't actually know if you've ever relapsed since you first went into recovery. I did, um, I because I, I didn't believe addiction and alcoholism were the same thing, and so I went along so with that. And then I decided to have a drink at uh, six and a half months on November eighteenth of two thousand, and then I ended up doing three and a half hits of ecstasy. That night, and then I uh, came back the next day, and was like, "Oh, I get it. It's all the same." Okay, so you you had that one relapse, and then you came back. Okay, yep. so so consider kind of like my getting kicked okay, out, yeah, my, yeah. that one thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like sometimes you just need a gut check, and yeah. you kind of go, 
I mean, what happened to me during those two weeks was I was sick of living that life. Yeah. I knew that. I just didn't know how to do anything else. Yeah. Sober in that house for eight months while I was fighting my court case. And it was life-changing. I mean, I was no longer the guy. I mean, again, like I talked about it in the talk um, last week, I wasn't the same guy. I was not the egotistical. I mean, look, I'm pretty fucking narcissistic nowadays by myself, but I talk for a living 80% yeah. of the time. So I think you've got to like the sound of yours a little bit to do that. But I was not the same guy. I was not as self-centered. I, I was not no longer the guy who didn't care about consequences and all that kind of stuff. So that, that was life-changing. Did that happen pretty much overnight? You know, that's a good question. It's hard for me to honestly remember. The willingness to go do something happened pretty quickly. Again, after I got kicked out of the other, the other place and kind of realized, oh, fuck, I need to do something. The process of change took a while. It took me about two years before I felt normal, mm-hmm. I would say. And I, But again, maybe kind of like you, I got pretty deep into that that world right mm-hmm. into the the what i kind of call the underbelly of of la and um and so it took a while to get out i eight months in that sober living then i went to jail for a year and i spent four months in county and then eight months in a work release program so they mm-hmm. let you work during the day but then you go back to jail at night which is much easier than and better than going to county mm-hmm. but i was sober throughout all that which was not normal a de facto yeah. thing by the yeah. way people were using left and right sure. in these places but I'd made a change. I mean, I I was sober. Right. Went back to grad school because I couldn't get a job. You know, I had nine so we, felonies. I got oh, but nine what felonies. were you working at the when you're the work the whatever random jobs? No, I couldn't. I couldn't get jobs. Well, no, but well, you're in the work to go to jail. Oh, tonight, oh that thing. I worked for my lawyer. Okay. I, he's probably not going to like me saying this out loud, but I had a pretend job at my lawyer's office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where I would go, I would drive him around, I would file stuff, I would it's do whatever. A real job. Yeah, yeah, I know. Okay. I, but it was like. And my lawyer did a favor. Yeah, yeah, Because if yeah. I didn't have a real job, I wouldn't be able to get out. It's kind of to work I want. Yeah. yeah, no, he was... I I thank my lawyer a lot for... Uh, honestly, just for... Your life, yeah. Yeah, for getting me a year. If I had 20 years in prison, my story would not be the same right now. Yeah. So got out. By the time I got out of jail, I had two years clean, essentially. And I almost... I think I made it almost to three. I don't... I don't remember. It was like... I think it was January 6th, like 2000. No, like 2000 and... Two is when I first got sober, but I don't, I don't remember my so- actual sober date. And for good reason, because I'm not sober anymore, right? So went to grad school, started studying, didn't know I was going to study addiction. But then the guy I got involved with, Dennis Fisher at, at Cal State Long Beach, where I went to get my master's, did research on HIV and hepatitis C. And it just so happens that most people that have, or many of the people that have hepatitis C and or HIV also use drugs. Mm-hmm. And we did this research on... Um, an indigent population, so specifically homeless. And so all this drug use stuff can come in through and all of a sudden it just clicked for me and I went, oh, I love this. Like I, all of a sudden I wanted to do work. So I've got motivated in a way that I'd never been motivated before. And that kind of thinking about can I drink came up in my head in my third year. Honestly, I'd never tested it before. Mm-hmm. I had no interest in testing it. But I worked for six months with my family, with my sponsor, with friends about this kind of thing in my head about like, I think I'm going to I want to take the experiment mm-hmm. and what is that going to look like, et cetera. And my mom thought, you've never been an alcoholic. That's not a problem. My dad was freaked out about it. I talked to my sponsor and he was kind of like, well, you know, whatever, you know, the, the thing a lot of sponsors. Specific group sponsor was doing that? Well, you, what are you I'm, pretty, do? I'm pretty yeah. persuasive. And also, yeah. what are you going to do? You can't exactly. stop anybody from doing yeah. something. So I remember my first sip of alcohol. I was sitting at my girlfriend at the time's house, she lived in Hermosa. I'm kind of overlooking the beach. We're watching TV. She liked to drink champagne like on Saturday and during the day, like at noon. Mm-hmm. Like one of those Hermosa beach kind I of girls. I so, yeah. I took her champagne. I had one sip and I sat back because 
I had no idea if I was going to be doing meth later that day. I mean, everybody kind of told me the train starts again. It's 11 years later. Yeah. The train hasn't started. And that's not that I, by the way, haven't touched anything other than alcohol in the last 11 years. But I don't have it. What have you touched? I smoked weed like two or three times. Mm -hmm. I hate weed. Me too. Always have. It just makes me freaking paranoid. Me too. And then I tried Molly a couple of times. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't have the same thing anymore. Yeah. I just don't like... There was such wholesale change in the way I look at life now that I'm not scared on any day. And again... For you. Yeah. Well, not even just for me. I also... I've been around long enough now to know that I could also be wrong. Right, right. Like right. That's the other important thing here is I could be wrong, just like anybody could be wrong. As could I. Sure. And that's also okay with me. Honestly, like I would rather be comfortable with where I am and transparent and honest. Yeah. And then if I fuck up, have people call me on it. Yeah. Be like, hey, you know, you're kind of showing up smelling like alcohol and drunk and you're saying that it's not a problem. So we need to do something. Rather than hiding it and having that whole kind of thing. So I would rather just be as transparent as I can be. And you saw the talk. It gets back to shame for me. Right. The thing that was so hard for me to get across before was from a young age, I didn't feel like I fit in, blah, all, all this stuff, right? Everybody knows these, these stories, but I hid from it. I played the same part, the same kind of thing where people now feel like I'm, um, like I'm outgoing and comfortable and whatever. I'm a relative introvert. I like alone time. I don't mm-hmm. do well in big crowds unless I'm in front of them speaking weirdly. Your narcissism seeps into pair, that introversion. Or something. Or, yeah, yeah. you know, look, it wasn't that wasn't true before. With the way I see it in my head is I have a message. Yeah. And that has trumped everything else. Right. I mean, honestly, look, it's why, it's why you do what you do, right? Like mm-hmm. when you have this thing you want to deliver, you'll do what you've got to do to go deliver it. If that means pr- practicing two months for a talk in front of, 250 people and whoever was watching it online, then that's what I have to do. Yeah. And so I am not, and I have friends who talk shit about 12 steps, like bad in a, in a very kind of strong way. They also know my feelings about it. They know I'm like, I don't need to hate on 12 steps. Like, yeah. There are people it works for and they need to be included in the conversation Whether you know, people throw on the cult thing and all this kind of stuff. You know, look, a cult is, a, a group that's controlled by somebody. Yeah, well, and it's and it's supposed to have a specific underlying purpose that is subversive, right? Yeah, way. and nefarious. And so um, I don't see that, and that doesn't mean there's no nefarious stuff happening within 12-step groups. That's not the same thing. But that wasn't my experience. And the people that I know that are members of 12-step are capable human beings. Yeah. And I don't want to take any of that kind of stuff away from them. What I realized through my journey is there are other ways. I hear from these people on by email. I see them. I meet them. I talk to them. I am one. My partner is one at Alternatives. Um, and I just kind of felt like part of my job now is to get the message out that there are a multitude of ways to recovery. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to your version of sobriety, mm-hmm. but to recovery, to, to a better life. Absolutely. And so my whole thing is just let's... Let's put that on the open so that the 90% of people who are not getting involved, and I, we can talk more about surveys, but like the large section of people who's not getting help goes, oh, I didn't want that help, but I want that one. Or I didn't want that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. And that's, that's really for me the point. And that's what I was saying like at the beginning. Yeah. When we get to the bottom line of it, most of us agree. Right. It's just about how do you go about doing it? And then you have your experience and I have mine. So obviously we're informed differently. But in the end, I think we all just want to help people. I don't think I don't think you're trying to 
hurt anyone by like no. getting them to see the value of 12 steps. And I think that you and I have the exact same point of view in that like this is my experience. And for a long time, I believed this was the only experience. This was the quote unquote right way to do it. Right. Through doing this work, uh, really when I started The Fix, I started to understand that this was just my experience yeah. and that the hard line I'd adopted was actually not not right, not true, not okay. accurate. Well, that that's that's heartwarming for me to hear because... Oh, yeah. You know, we don't control other people's paths. No. At best, we get to be guides, right? At best, we get to say, why don't you try this? And I think that anybody who is passionate for one way has got some agenda that I don't like. I could you see know, that. And, and what's interesting, I think, about, about you professionally is that you were the first person I heard publicly that was uh, not doing that, that was, you know, promoting is a bad word, but promoting another way. And then um, let's call you a trendsetter in the last like five years, all I hear, and that pisses me off, these writers who are extremely talented and extremely well-connected, who get their pieces in, you know, the most widely read publications, who are coming from a place of such ignorance. I actually didn't know you were in 12-step for three years, but they're coming from a place of something happened. Either they tried it and it didn't work, or some loved one tried it, because why would they be so angry? Yeah. Look, I I actually don't know the answer to why people so angry other than a, there's a subset of people i mean you've seen the 13th step yeah. film i could see how if somebody gets sexually assaulted in 12-step meetings they would develop a an aversion and that doesn't by the way mean that it's necessarily the responsibility of the organization or not but but i could see why some like that's never happened to me and i would imagine that i would develop some deep-seated hate for a group of people, if you if you listen to these stories, a group of people that, that sort of turns a blind eye. But can, can I just yeah, chime in here? Oh, um, and you know, I anticipate. You know, I understand that this is a not a very anti-feministic response. Okay, I have been like sexually propositioned by when I was new by more men than I can even count, and I was perfectly able. I had all my senses around me to to rebuff them. I get okay, but so here here's where personal experience and, and understand well and an understanding of some other people's reality comes into play. Yeah. Because you also I'm assuming if you were in an abusive relationship would leave it very quickly because you go like, Hey, this isn't working. And all I'm saying is you know that people walk into twelve step meetings, people walk in all recovery versions in a really vulnerable state. And there are predators everywhere. Absolutely. So I don't think this is unique to twelve step. the The argument, the argument for some of these people is that is it okay to mandate? Because for years we've mandated that people go to twelve step meetings. There's a difference between people walking into a twelve step meeting because they think it's going to help them, and people walking to a twelve step meeting because a judge told them that they have to. Absolutely. And so the argument, yeah. the argument that I've heard from uh, Monica Richardson, who's the person who yeah. did that that movie, was we can't just keep sending people because they got convicted of something and drugs were in their system to these meetings. That's not an okay solution because yeah. they don't give a fuck. They don't want to go to the meetings. Some, going to the, some. Some, no, no, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I got sentenced to yeah, that yeah. thing. But I'm saying if we do that, we have to put some safeguards in place. And that's all she's saying is if you develop this thing where you tell somebody that got convicted of a crime, let's say especially like a violent crime or whatever, that they have to go to these meetings, you have to recognize the inherent risk in the fact that at least some of those people are going to continue 
the same sort of pattern of behavior. That's to me, that's the only argument. And I agree with that, you yeah. know. And I do think that people, because so many people do not respond to the twelve step way, just for their own recovery, sure. present a bunch of things. Present Noah Levine's program. Present sure. all of these things and give them the option to have that signed. Absolutely. What, Which, by the way, is the law now. So you actually can't. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Dr. Mark Kern, who's my partner at Alternatives, worked on this. I think. I want to say it was the late 90s, but either late 90s or early 2000s. And they actually got a law passed in California. You cannot mandate that somebody has to attend 12-step meetings. You can uh, mandate that they have to attend self-help meetings for drug and alcohol abuse. But Life Ring, Smart Recovery, AA, uh, Women for Sobriety, and sober organiza- uh, Secular Organization for Sobriety, all those have to qualify. Because if the goal is the recovery from the substance use problems, you can't mandate what kind of things they'll do. You made a face. Nobody can see it because we're on a podcast. AA is a lot more available. Exactly. That so was that's what the face was. I yeah. Know. So that's why that's why it wins. And that's okay. Like, again, it's more available for a reason. So I'm okay with that. Smart recovery, I think now Tom Horvath can correct me if I'm wrong on this on some comment when this posts. But I think there are like 10,000 meetings worldwide, which is pretty incredible from where it is. But my joke is always, you know, there's 10,000 meetings, meetings in, in LA, LA yeah. like on a weekly basis. So... You know, one thing I did want to say, though, about, um, you know, the Monica Richardson situation, let's just say I was in an abusive relationship with a lawyer. I would not then go on a rampage about how all lawyers are abusive. No. And how, why doesn't the legal profession help me? No, but let me, let me, a little caveat to that, right? So there's, there was a controversy with a a physician, a gynecologist recently. Yeah. Who was found to sexually molest patients. Yep. Would you be upset if... Nobody told you that your gynecologist has been abu- accused of and uh, convicted of molesting his patients when they're under? I would be upset. Okay. If so, I went on a bus, you know, an unmonitored bus, and uh, there was somebody on there who... It, it, it's, but, nobody, but nobody's being mandated to go on that bus. And that's the difference. The, and I don't disagree with you that okay, the mandating so, so is I think wrong. That's, so I think that's yeah. the thing. It's not about... Again, so this is... That's the only piece that I, I've connected to where people get mad is this kind of the... The piece where there's this um, inappropriate, not not inappropriate, but like, you know, literally people who take advantage of vulnerable individuals within these, uh, these systems. Steppers. And, well, I mean, 13-stepping when I was in a, was almost like a joke. People yeah. talked about it like a joke, which, yeah. by the way, is not also but not necessarily okay. Like I gave my, in my talk on labels, you know, if we start just accepting even some of the language around it, et cetera, it's a subtle way of condoning that, yeah, it's okay. You know, people come in and some some of the um, more experienced men or women, by the way, it happens on both sides, kind of scoop in. Now, again, I don't want to get into, I think that's, that's side railing us a little bit. All I'm saying is I've had the experience. It gave me benefit. I left the program. And the, so for my experience, I feel as negatively about the people, and I've had people do this, who hear about my experience and then pull out their card and say, we'll save a seat for you, mm-hmm. as I feel about the people who think that A is harmful and mm-hmm. should be literally annihilated. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing. Because, I, don't, dis- because I those, don't disagree at all. The people who kind of write off my experience do the same thing to me. And the reason I speak out about this all the time, even though the risk I take on is if I fuck up, yeah. I fuck up a movement. Because the same thing that happened to Audrey Kishline, right? Yeah. The whole MM thing... People still talk about what she did with the accident and, you know, she took her own life. Um, So it was that troubling. And so I take that as a serious responsibility, first of all. And the other thing is I just want to give people a voice. Like I just 
the fact that you get looked at weirdly and five, six, seven years ago, people would yell at me on panels. They were right. like, people would go after me and say, what are you talking? You're going to kill. Literally, people would say to me, you're going to kill alcoholics. And I said, how am I going to kill an alcoholic? And I said, because you're giving them permission to drink. And you know what I say to every single person who says that? That's fucking stupid. I never have to give permission to an alcoholic to drink. Right. If somebody has an alcohol problem, they will use any excuse they have to drink. That's not what we do at Alternatives. What we do is we give people another option. So we actually, I'll tell you stories. I've had the opposite things happen. I had a client who came in, wanted to learn how to moderate, spent the two requisite months sober with us, did his genetics testing. And I said to him, I said, you know, honestly, I don't think drinking is a good idea for you because of your genetics and some other stuff that we're seeing. That kid's sober, has been sober for eight years, uh, eight months now. Interesting. He came for moderation and picked abstinence later. But how common is that? It's more common than you think. Maybe like 20% of our moderation clients end up going to abstinence, maybe even 30%. We're doing research on this right now, but people switch. And just like the label talk that I gave, yeah. it's the fact that we don't believe that it happens, which precludes us from seeing the opportunities for it to happen. Right. You right. know, in the big book, it says, right? That if somebody doesn't believe that they can't control their drinking, Hats off, go drink. That, that they should they should go and try it out on their on their own, right? But there's a problem. The belief in that book is if you can moderately drink, you'll figure it out on your own. If you can't and you have to abstain, you've got to follow these rules. Why why is one something you should learn on your own and another one something you need rules for? Right. We teach people what they might need to learn how to control their drinking. And by having a set of guidelines and rules, you start understanding whether you're breaking them. I had a guy who went to residential treatment. He wanted to come to us for moderation, ended up not coming to us, still sober again. And in residential treatment, his counselor's recommendation, I'm not going to call any names or talk about the treatment centers, but his counselor's recommendation when he told him that he wanted to see if he can drink later was, okay, well, you know, when you finish here, just try to have a cup, no more than two drinks a day and see how it goes. I said, that's fucking idiotic. If you drink two drinks every single day, you're a heavy drinker. You should not drink two drinks every day. That's a stupid rule, mm. right? For anybody listening to this right now, drinking two drinks every day puts you in the heavy drinking category. Just one drink a day, you think? Uh, for women, they're starting to move the, yeah. the, the line up. But yes, for women, that's the top line of moderate. That's right the border between moderate and heavy drinking is one drink per day. But don't drink every day. Right. Like, why is the recommendation that you leave rehab where you've been sober for 30 days and start drinking every day? That's stupid. That's a highly unusual bit of advice. It's a really unusual bit of advice, but that's what I'm saying when I tell you that when people think that they know what we're even talking about by this controlled drinking thing, they don't. Right. People have literally told my marketing person that they thought we had a bar in the office right. and like that we serve alcohol. It's like <laughs> the number of stupid things I hear about what people think we do is huge. And so for me... Having these conversations is about saying, I learned how to drink again. My drinking before was excessive because I was in college and high school, and so I didn't know how to drink differently. We've taught some people how to drink differently. We've taught some people that they can't drink differently. And then the rest of the people are floundering just like they would have been floundering otherwise. What we offer is not a 100% foolproof solution for anybody who's struggling with alcohol or drugs. We give people another door to walk in through. And... Almost everybody that's come to my treatment center has either never been to treatment because they've stayed away from it for years or they've been to like eight right. or nine treatment centers as it hasn't worked and they want something else. And for me, they need an option. So what do you recommend? How, what do you teach? First of all, everybody with us starts with abstinence. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of reasons. One of them is to break your tolerance. Uh, but the other one is you have to learn how to abstain. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kern has a great saying, I'll never be able to improve on it, is to be good at moderation, you have to be good at abstaining. Mm -hmm. Because anybody who consumes responsibly is not using most of the time. 
Mm-hmm. So for us now, it's two months. That's a short period of time. I'll admit it. It would be much. I would love it if we could make it a year mm-hmm. and not people wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. They so just because I want something doesn't mean it'll uh, happen. So after those two months, during those two months, we do genetics testing. We do a huge battery of psychological testing. Essentially, all of our clients do neurofeedback and biofeedback to address any brain pattern abnormalities that have occurred, maybe existed before their substance use or maybe got developed because of it. Mm-hmm. Things related to attention, sleep issues, a lot of different stuff. And then as we approach the two months, we start having a real conversation. Like, okay, if you've been sober for two months because you've got to cross that hurdle to get to moderation, do you really want to start again? Mm-hmm. What is the timeline going to look like? And then I would equate it, I don't want to get into all the details, but I would equate it to like training for a marathon. Mm-hmm. Have you ever trained for long running? Mm-mm. No. So if you, you know, there are books on how to train for a marathon mm-hmm. and they literally tell you drink this much on this day or sorry, they don't tell you to drink. They tell you to run. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like run this many miles on this day and then rest this much and do this in the middle and run this many the next day. And on, on Saturdays, you have to run longer and they give you a, a real path. Mm-hmm. We do We do that for our clients. So it's about four to six months of training Mm -hmm. and again it's not that people bat a thousand if they get to the end of those four six months but they do really well like i would say 50 to 60 percent of the people who can get past two to three months of that training drink responsibly and the other 50 percent fall off and we kind of start talking to them about hey this doesn't seem like it's working maybe we got to switch to abstinence and so what is it is it like two drinks a week like what is it we actually tell let people set what their end goal is Mm -hmm. but we start them really slowly we start them with like a drink a week Mm -hmm. and then we build up to their goal over time Mm -hmm. we work really hard to help people sustain realistic goals Mm -hmm. we try to stay away from daily drinking some people do it with medication some people do it without medication and that goes the realm from antidepressants anti-anxiety medication um naltrexone mm-hmm. to reduce cravings. I mean, if I look at it, there are probably a, a few dozen different kind of like specific paths that people end up taking. Most people want almost the same thing. They either want to like have a drink every work day or something like that mm-hmm. after work, or they want like two or three drinking days a week. That mm-hmm. Those are their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we work towards those goals. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing that people have a hard time understanding is I'm completely agnostic in terms of what goal they end up meeting. I consider my clients that meet abstinence goals after trying moderation for six months as successful as the clients that find moderation. Right. I'm not trying to get people to drink. That's not my goal. Right. My goal is to get people to stop having problems with drugs and alcohol. Right. I just don't think that mandating abstinence on the front end is the best way to do that for everybody. And are you also agnostic? I am agnostic. And so we started, before we started recording, we were talking about how we were at the most spectacular event last yeah. weekend, probably of my life. Oh, I felt the same way. Yeah. It was, we can say what it was. It was yeah. Um, so it's this invite only. I feel kind of very shishi when I oh, say yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially because um, you were a speaker. I felt thrilled to just be invited. It was incredible. So Mind Body Green is this huge um, wellness website. But I wasn't really even familiar on it, to be honest. My wife has written for them, and she's a health blogger and all that kind of stuff. So she talked to them about me and they ended up picking me for speaking, which was... Wow, you didn't even have to put yourself out there. I didn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had a lot of conversations yeah, before yeah. they picked me, but yeah, it was 250 incredible people in one place. Like, 
I wish that would have gone for a month just so I could talk to everybody. I know. Um, so, Jason, when you listen to this podcast, please have more of these events. Did you fill out the survey? The I post? haven't yet. But... I had a lot of feedback about that. Okay. Because I wanted to meet everybody. Yeah. And my suggestion was break up into small groups and then break up into other small groups because there were so many people I wanted to meet that I did not. And so many talks. I know. So many talks. I know. And was, I missed a number it, it of them. It was dense. Um, sorry, you were talking about the event. And so that was, it was called Revitalize. And yes, and so we were talking about how you almost had a spiritual experience there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, you know, my wife is very spiritual. Okay. And we're literally yin and yang. It's the funniest thing ever. I love Sophie, and she she makes up for all my deficiencies, which mm-hmm. is great. I think that's a good thing to find in a partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how she puts up with me, but she does. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my wife lives in this universe where everything will be okay always. And as long as you put out the best intentions, they will come back to you. A la karma and all that other mm-hmm. stuff. I don't live in that world. Mm-hmm. I live in an East European Jewish, you've got a plan because you never know if the next disaster is coming universe. Mm-hmm. And that's where I've lived since I was a kid. That's the, literally the house I grew up in. And so I've absorbed some of the stuff from Sophie. But um, there were a few people there that kind of talked about whether being like intuitives or... Mm-hmm. or um, kind of their relationship with the world. And it's fascinating to me, mm-hmm. primarily because I'm an academic and I like being exposed to things that I'm not comfortable with and used to. But there's a huge kind of weight and comfort that comes when you can allow that in. I don't think I'll ever be religious. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty strongly connected to the Jewish kind of uh, customs because mm-hmm. I grew up in Israel. But I don't uh, the concept of God doesn't, it's its weird to me. Mm-hmm. I have no problem admitting that there are things bigger than me. I mean, we live in the universe. Right. It's, everything is bigger than me. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we're sitting in a WeWork office. It's bigger than me, yeah. literally and figuratively. And so that's that I'm fine with. But, you know, spirituality is hard for me to connect to. So I got, yes, I got a few glimpses of it there. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was it's hard for me to say life-altering experience, but it was uh, a life-invigorating and uh, illuminating experience to be there for that weekend. Yeah, I would almost say it was life-changing for me. It's hard to say a week later, you know, is my week changed or is my life changed? Yeah, yeah. But I was so inspired. You know, food is one thing that, like, I'm so healthy in every way. You know, I sleep eight hours. I exercise every day. I meditate 40 minutes. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. And... And food is like the one area where mm. most people's standards, I couldn't be healthier. By Los Angeles standards, I'm not. Okay. I'm not that So here's my call to action for yeah. you for today. Uh, yeah. Get in touch with my wife. She, do, she does miracles for people. Well, I just from my conversations that yeah. I have completely altered. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, I like just the stuff I've been eating this week, and it's delicious. And Yeah. You know. It wasn't hard, like sitting at the Ritz-Carlton at Dove Mountain where they literally make all this vegan gluten-free food for you constantly yeah was not rough no um, can we get sponsored by bulletproof coffee i'm going to that conference this weekend uh, are you um, did you know it's this weekend no where is it it's in pasadena oh it's not that far no you should come okay so i know this won't be posted by then no but, um i got i told sophie the day we came back i'm like i just want to walk downstairs and have somebody give me bulletproof no. coffee that was so nice that was so nice i have tried the bulletproof thing on my own very briefly and it didn't taste like that you know what i mean they've got the, the that's perfect what i'm saying method. that's that's why yeah. it was so nice like they're blending it it was, it was beautiful i want i, I just want to go back jason can we go live there i know well dave asprey if you're listening 
Yeah, we'll take it. We're We're in. in. Yeah, we'll take it. We can have like a retreat or something. Yeah. So it's in Pasadena. Okay, I'll look it up. Yeah, yeah. I can put you in touch actually with the people. Cool. So uh, we should wrap up. This has been a fantastic conversation. Awesome. Would you agree? Yeah, I love this. Can we have more? Yes. Awesome, cool. Revitalize 2017. (laughs) Totally. Um, So thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, so that was Dr. Adi Jaffe on After Party Pod. Find out more about him by going to addictionalternatives.com. Follow After Party on social media and go to the website afterpartymagazine.com and sign up for the newsletter. Sorry, afterpartynewsletter.com. I'm going to stop talking. I'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.